Welcome to Navigating Change, the education podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I am here with Howard Tybal and a very special guest to talk about iteration, failure, and as a finance professional, how to be a leader in your institution in strategic conversations on creative new models of revenue generation. To learn more about Tybal's work in education, head over to tybalinc.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to this show for free. Just click the blue button, and we will keep you updated whenever we post new shows. So our guest today is Chad Wiedenhofer, currently serving as Senior Vice President of First American Education Finance. His team serves over 600 institutions across the U.S., leading change in our increasingly complex higher ed ecosystem. Yeah, thanks, Pete. I think central to what Chad and his group is up to is something that we find in our work is central to thinking about change. And that is, how do you engage leaders in thinking differently, not just about, in this case, the academic program, which is really the sort of the new hot thing, but how to get finance folks to be stepping back from, this is how we've always done funding. This is how we have uh, gotten through the next budget cycle and step back and think about this more holistically. So Chad, tell us a little bit about how you and First American are approaching this question about engaging leaders to think differently about funding and and bringing sort of a different mindset to, uh, in a sense, the business side of higher education. Absolutely. And Howard, first, uh, it's, it's great to be with you here. Um, you know, First American, just to maybe give some context to what it is we do, uh, we provide finance solutions to the education community. And so that's really geared towards a whole range of different types of, of projects and perhaps strategic initiatives that a school might have. Um, and part of, to your question, how we're trying to maybe engage, you know, that, that group of folks um, in a unique and, and different way is, is really through what we've kind of labeled as peer discussion events, where um, in a various set of forums, uh, whether it's Nakubo, um, we've, we've done similar events uh, at Educause and AISHI, uh, where leadership uh, within the, uh, the education community gather, where we can create kind of a unique environment uh, for leaders, you know, among the education community to really engage peers and kind of uh, best practice sharing, you know, um, usually geared around common challenges and, and themes that schools might face. And it's been kind of a unique outlet for schools to really talk about these challenge uh, challenges in a, a unique peer-to-peer setting. Uh, and frankly, it's helped us, you know, really learn from that audience as much as, as they've learned from each other. So it's it's been something that we've been committed to for about the last six years now. And it, it's been a great uh, forum to have these thought leadership type discussions. Uh, in yeah, I'm looking at this, the Nashville one, 50 business officers from college universities across the country gathered to discuss resiliency. And, you know, I love that language and entrepreneurial thinking. Uh, You know, it's not about sustainability. It's about thriving. But resiliency is an interesting word. So talk more about what what that means to you and why you think that's a good way for business officers to be thinking. Sure. You you know, and that was uh, led by Ben Waldabowski, who was, you know, typically we try to bring in uh, thought leaders on these topics to help create that environment. Uh, and Ben really talked about, you know, resiliency from the standpoint uh, of how do we create resiliency within an institution? Um, how do we, you know, tolerate, you know, failures and, and learn from those failures uh, and be resilient in our pursuit, you know, of, of whatever that initiative might be? Uh, but to take failure, you know, really as an opportunity to, to learn and, and push forward 
uh, as opposed to, you know, kind of a, a start and finish to an initiative where yeah. uh, failure is kind of perceived more negatively. Well, you know, it's interesting about failure is that, you know, there are other domains, you know, if I think about IT, there's, there's a, there's a, it's not a new model, but for higher ed in many cases, it's a new model of bringing a different approach to IT projects mm-hmm. where it's not about this, you know, six month planning and then, you know, year and a half uh, design, but it's really about uh, design, roll out, design, roll out, experiment. And that kind of way of working, it's really hard to do that in higher ed. You know, I've been in this work for many years and this idea of being willing to fail and and, and fail fast, that is really a, a domain that getting people to embrace that uh, is is necessary but I there's in many cases not a lot of receptivity that I've seen over the years so how do you get people uh, you know when you think about engaging folks in thinking about failing I'm, I'm actually very curious about how you engage them in that conversation about failure yeah you know in that in that setting a lot of what you're referring to I think was was part of that discussion and we talked about iteration is kind of the concept around that and mm. You know, I think part of you know what was a unique to me about that discussion is you could kind of see culturally where institutions really had uh, a culture and a mindset around iteration and kind of short-term goals um, that, when you add it all up, kind of create the progress that they're looking for. But also a culture where iteration um, and the failure that might come with that. Um, was accepted as something that you know, in essence, can be positive, and that we learn from those things, and it helps you know helps us get to uh, ultimately the destination that we're we're trying to get to. So, you know, certainly cultural um, beliefs and mindsets. I think that those were apparent, and I think you know that's obviously a, a challenge to create a culture and environment um, you know that, that that embraces those things. But that's part of you know I think what that peer-to-peer environment can help create is you know what are the things that you're doing. Uh, within your institution to kind of create that culture and environment. What can we learn from um, as we address similar challenges within our respective institution? When we engage campus leaders in these conversations, one of the questions is about burning platform, right? Mm-hmm. So is there a burning platform? And, you know, with with the with as many institutions that are out there, the spectrum is very wide. Some schools that are doing really well, create an artificial burning platform because that's how they get people to move. Other schools who are really doing very poorly in some cases may have their head in the sands about this. So it's really tough, I found. You know, I'm just looking at the most recent Business Officer magazine and Mark Zandi, chief economics uh, for Moody's Analytics. There's an article here about uh, optimism and that there's reason to be optimistic. And what's fascinating about this focus on optimism is that when we sometimes characterize that things are not as bad as we think or they're actually pretty good, sometimes that has the effect of people taking their foot off the gas. Yeah. So the the balance here, I think, that you probably live with all the time is how do you get people to pay attention to thinking differently about alternative uh, ways of financing as opposed to what f- business officers and leaders have been used to doing that have worked over the years. So what's an example of an alternative way of thinking about financing that you think business officers should be doing more or thinking about? You know, a lot of our conversations there might center around, you know, opportunity costs. 
And, you know, schools may have important initiatives, important, important projects that oftentimes, you know, due to budget constraints, uh, might not fit, you know, with, within their, their budget for that specific year. And so oftentimes you see projects deferred. And again, these could be a, a whole wide range of projects that are strategic in, in the sense that they might be geared towards new academic programs. They might be related to deferred maintenance um, or other other important initiatives like that. And oftentimes I think what we see is a reluctance uh, for schools to, to want to enter the, the debt market to tap into those types of projects. They'd rather yeah. just defer it and, and kind of kick the can down the road, so to speak. And I think part of our conversations really center around, you know, trying to quantify the opportunity costs of doing that. Uh, and in some instances, you know, certainly there are projects where, you know, when you really analyze those opportunity costs, you know, there is a significant benefit to considering these alternative funding methods that enable these projects to move forward uh, and mitigate some of those opportunity costs. And one example, you know, might be specific to uh, deferred maintenance projects that have an energy efficiency component. Uh, so sometimes, certainly here in the Northeast, you know, you've got old uh, old buildings, you know, that have um, older, you know, systems within those buildings, and the opportunity for schools to address the, the deferred maintenance within those buildings that has an energy efficiency component. Um, provides, you know, real opportunity for those schools to invest in projects that have a quantifiable savings. Yeah, that's a really good example, you know. But I, as I think about this, too, one of the challenges I found that is also an opportunity is how we engage the broader leadership. So your entry point, I would imagine, are the people who have the greatest sense of uh, sort of the financial picture of the institution. And very often, uh, decisions around priorities have to be brought back to the broader cabinet, and sometimes the faculty need to be involved in this. Clearly, at the at the most senior level, the chief academic officer on the cabinet. And so, so when you get in there, how much do you need to make sure that there is a broader understanding of these kinds of uh, initiatives to get buy-in for people to make the commitment? Or is it sufficient to just deal, in this case, with the financial leader who's going to be your spokesperson, you know, for these for these kinds of alternative ways of, uh, of, of, of funding universities? I think that's a great point. You know, a lot of our work, you know, is with uh, the chief financial officer, the business office. And part of, you know, our work, you know, requires them to, to kind of take these concepts and ideas, um, you know, to the board and, and the, the broader set of individuals that are responsible for these decisions within an institution. Um, but it's really our conversations are, are starting with, uh, I think, you know, we've certainly seen business officers have a wider array of responsibilities over the last several years. Um, you know, on a college university campus, and they're the ones that I think are, are kind of on the front lines and tasks with addressing, you know, some of these very important key initiatives. And so a lot of our conversations start there, uh, and part of our goal in, in that process is to really equip them um, with the information and the tools, you know, that they can use to create, um, you know, the, build the process of, of consensus on their campus to, to really make these projects uh, obviously a reality. What are some new things that uh, you're finding that is really resonating out there around new kinds of projects where what you're bringing to the table can really help them? So, you know, so when I think about how schools are thinking about outsourcing and insourcing, how schools are thinking about shared services or using... Uh, systems that 
on their procurement side to, to think differently about that work. What, what right now would you say is hot that that business leaders or even academic and administrative leaders in higher ed should be paying attention to because this is there's a growing demand and opportunity to embrace these. Do you have a couple of examples? Absolutely. Yeah, I would say, you know, certainly um, new ways to generate revenue, obviously. So revenue generating investments and opportunities, um, software, you know, we see a lot. So, in terms so of stop there for one second. Yeah. Revenue generating, because I, you know, we're, we're, we're working a lot with schools that, that the conversation right now, we're already cut to the bone, right? So we're not going to grow our way out of some of our financial challenges. So what are some examples of some new revenue sources, as I assume that's some ways that you're talking about, that schools could be looking at? Because this is on everybody's mind right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, a lot of our work um, has been geared towards more of the traditional sense when we think of revenue generating um, projects where schools are implementing you know, new athletic programs. You know, we, we've done a project recently where schools, you know, they, they're fundraising for some of these initiatives. Uh, there was a school in Texas that had a new football program they were looking to implement. Um, but a lot of times the, the campaign to raise funds for these projects, they're pledges, you know, into the future. And so when you think about, you know, again, from a, a cash flow standpoint and how schools can maybe come up with creative alternative ways to address some of those challenges, bridge financing concepts where you align kind of future pledge receivables uh, to fund the projects now, which means, you know, they can start that that football program a couple years earlier, you know, which means a generation of revenue that they weren't uh, originally anticipating based on original timelines. So, so that can be certainly valuable. Um, we've seen and, and done some work uh, with schools that are looking at uh, more private sector type partnerships. Um, we certainly see a lot. I mentioned on the athletic side, schools finding ways to, you know, get more use out of those facilities and rent those facilities out and, and drive revenue in, in new ways there. So those would be a few examples of, of where our work might intersect with schools, intersect with schools that are trying to generate some of those new revenue uh, opportunities. Yeah. So you know, just hearing those examples really reminds me of, you know, you you have to be in the middle of how to manage these conversations from the point of view of uh, people acclimating the change, right? This mm-hmm. is not just, uh, here's a list of things you can be doing, but as I hear these examples and knowing some of the schools, at least that we have been working with, getting their buy-in on, on this is probably the single biggest challenge because on the other side of it, uh, they find themselves uh, getting the benefit. Sometimes maybe it's as simple as them talking to their peers mm-hmm. and seeing how trying new things really has benefited them. Because I'll tell you, there's a is an understandable uh, risk aversion, aversion mm-hmm. that uh, institution leaders have because of some of the things that happens. You know, so tweaking, for example, your discount rate. There are outlier stories out there about what 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 a nightmare that could be, and I think there is a, a tendency to focus more on uh, avoiding something that could be a cat- catastrophe versus looking yeah. at this as an opportunity. And and to me, that's the biggest barrier to get people to really engage in this kind of um, exercise is yeah. to be willing to put some of their fears aside about, you know, the ripple effect of making choices on tuition or discount or what you suggested as some alternatives and being willing to dive in there and say, can we try something? 
Yeah. And once they do, then they build some confidence that builds the the ability for them to go back to their larger constituency and say, you know what, we can do this. A- absolutely. Yeah. And, and I would echo that that same observation. I think we certainly see that. Uh, in our business, and to your point, you know, when and I see that as cultural. You know, I think a lot of schools that, to your point, risk aversion. Um, you know, the focus on stewardship and preserving the mission, and and kind of the conflict that that might present with investing and, and taking risk in some new areas that that might um, again kind of create some some tension between those two goals. Uh, so I think we certainly see that. You know, in our business, I would also say that you know our clients, you know, range kind of the whole gamut of the higher education community. You know, they're elite Ivy League schools, you know, down to to smaller liberal arts institutions. And I think certainly over the last couple of years, we've seen, and I think this was reflective uh, in the 2013 um, Nakubo, you know, profile of of, um, business officers that Mm -hmm. they do, Yes, where it seems like there is kind of this influx of um, private sector uh, finance professionals that, you know, come from different backgrounds that, are now taking roles, you know, within the the higher education community. And it does seem like as we interact with those individuals, you know, there is kind of a different mindset based on those unique experiences uh, as opposed to someone who's been in in academia uh, their entire career. And and that's, you know, been interesting to kind of see that uh, trend continue, I think we've noticed over the last couple of years and what that might be. no question. And what's interesting about that, that comment is, you know, as I look at the, there's a wonderful report in the Chronicle, March 4th, the trends report of 2016. And in their executive summary, they speak to something directly that you just raised, which is we've got this advent of new, of new folks coming into higher ed who are not sort of encumbered by this is how we've always done it mm-hmm. yeah. and also come from a, a mindset of uh, results, right? And, and yep. a, a level of impatience. There is a pros and cons to this because if you think about one of the trends in this report that people should read is the growing use of metrics to measure faculty pro- productivity, Mm-hmm. Right, so colleges have new tools to see how their professors stack up, how they're, and how they're not afraid to use them. Faculty's critics say the tools provide an incomplete and inaccurate picture of their jobs. When I think about what business officers need in that regard, even especially if you're coming from the outside, is being willing to do two things really well. One, build relationship with the people that you're trying to engage, yep. and two being willing to have the courage to raise tough questions, but recognize the difference between having a conversation and making a decision. Mm-hmm. I think what happens very often in, in these, you know, the people that you're serving and that you're trying to help is they will introduce a new idea, a new, a new way of thinking about doing business or getting things done at the university and people will put the brakes on because they hear a discussion as a decision. And and leaders, and this is just something that I'm always trying to pitch, leaders need to be willing to recognize that the listener is not necessarily hearing the words you're speaking. What they're hearing is, if you raise this, this means you've already decided. This is something I think we, and even in your role, right? So you come in, you're pitching something. Uh, one of the things that you and me and anyone else trying to serve higher ed has to be mm-hmm. mindful of is the listening out there and to understand not just the benefits, 
but how the process works so that people can let their guard down a little bit. Absolutely. You know, I've enjoyed, you know, listening to some of your previous podcasts and I, the president from Valparaiso, yeah, you know, I, I thought he spoke to some of these concepts oh, yeah. uh, as he kind of entered that role. I thought that was a very fascinating conversation and, and learned a great deal from that. But I also think there's some elements that you're referring to that um, were certainly iterated in, in that discussion as well. All right. So final question. What do you love about your work? You know what? I, I feel we, we I, the, I didn't I didn't give you any uh, preparation for this. Let's just be clear. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can put me on the spot here. You know, I do love what I do. And uh, we're fortunate. You know, we have a great team here that, that works with schools. And we're fortunate to travel all around the country and spend time on, on school campuses. And I can't think, you know, in those days of a better office or environment to spend your day in. There's something about a campus, you know, that uh, is energizing. I don't know if that's because I reflect back on my own experiences, you know, in, in college. Yeah. But I also, you know, you, you get inspired by the future and, and just the, the enthusiasm and the energy. And um, it's great to be a part of, you know, and, and to work with schools to help enable, you know, those environments that are created uh, on those campuses. That's uh, it's a worthy thing to do. I can't think of a better industry to be working in myself. And, you know, I love how you characterize that because that's what keeps me going every day is that this is serving something that's really about the greater good. And being able to be part of that and help with that, you know, you as long as you and I are in this work, uh, there will always be a need to take it to the next step. And uh, what's what's exciting is there's greater receptivity out there for the kinds of things that we're doing. I think people yep. understand that we need to change, but we have to change in a thoughtful way. So, you know, what we'll do is um, what are, what are some ways you'd want people to uh, learn more about you guys? Because uh, we'll we'll put links up for them or any anything you want them to know. Absolutely. You know, you can spend some time learning more about First American on our website uh, at faeducationfinance.com. Um, we have, I mentioned, frequent peer discussion events uh, that you'll see on there as well, and we love to have uh, new attendees join us for those those thoughtful discussions. There's always uh, a lot of great connections and a lot of great takeaways from those events. And we're also publishing um, a new kind of thought leadership content piece that we're calling the Higher Standard, which is a collection of insights from you know some of the, the third-party, I would say, higher education experts that we've been fortunate to work with in the past, a lot of times tied to those peer discussion events. Uh, as well as kind of unique insights and thoughts from our clients uh, that, that they share as well uh, related to some of these challenges. And, and um, I think there's a lot of good insights and content there as well. Fantastic. So we'll make that available to people. I love the higher standard as a, <laughs> as a headline. Hook, did you come up with that? Was that yours? That's Trisha. That's our, our Trisha. marketing. Yes, yes. Trisha, nice job. Very All good. right, listen, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, I look forward to uh, continuing to connect with you. Thank you, Howard. Pleasure. Appreciate it. You can find all the links Chad mentioned right there in the show notes of this episode if you're listening on your mobile app of choice, or you can find them on our site at tybalink.com slash podcast slash 145. On behalf of Chad and Howard, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next week right here on Navigating Change. Navigating Change.